0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Think about what we value today, what we give rewards to as a society. Now imagine, if you can, a business tycoon who is modest and filled with generosity, who would gamble a million dollars on one roll of the dice, but whose story is a real Horatio Alger rags to riches story. A man whose word is his bond, who eschews self-promotion, yet operates in Las Vegas. A man who saw the importance of the larger world and helping others in it while still appreciating all that is American. A man who knew how to fly, but never too close to the sun. That's in part the story of Kirk Kikorian. It's a story told by my guest William Rappel in his new book, The Gambler. William Rappel is a veteran investigative reporter and editor with the Los Angeles Times. He's been recognized with numerous journalism honors and awards and was a finalist for the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. He's the author of the previous book, At the Devil's Table, the untold story of the insider who brought down the Cali cartel, which was the basis of an 80-episode Spanish-language television series, and he was a consultant for season three of Narcos on Netflix. It is my pleasure to welcome William Rempel here to talk about The Gambler, how penniless dropout Kirk Kokorian became the greatest dealmaker in capitalist history. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Hey,
1: it's my pleasure. It's a, such a contradictory character that uh, Kirk was, and uh, so, so fascinating to a writer. It's
0: such a contradictory character in that he was as modest as he was, that he, that he eschewed self-promotion. But yet, that he operated in Las Vegas, in Hollywood, in some of the most high-profile businesses imaginable.
1: Absolutely right. Yes, he was, his and his friends were the uh, the Cary Grants and and uh, literally and Frank Sinatra's of the world. So he he was uh, he was hardly a a hermit. He he was everywhere and and socially active. But but he wanted no part of celebrity himself. That was what he did. Everything he could to avoid.
0: From what you discovered about him, how did he reconcile that? How did he reconcile the fact that he was surrounded by celebrity and surrounded by what we would call today celebrity businesses and yet want to keep such a low profile for himself?
1: Well, for one thing, he, he had a, uh, a very humble view of himself. He, he knew where he came from. He knew he was a man who dropped out of school in the eighth grade, he knew he didn't speak very good English, even though his, I mean, his his English was great. It was, but it was more of a, a colloquial. And um, he he knew that he wasn't educated enough to, to sound erudite, and that and so he didn't want people to think of him as someone who knew everything at all. He was he was just uh, feeling his way along through life himself, and uh, he didn't he considered that a a full time job.
0: And yet his talents as a dealmaker, as a businessman, where did those skills come from and how did they fit in with with this modesty that he had about himself?
1: Well, you know, I I think there's a, a, one of the characteristics he brought to these big deals was uh, daring, simple daring, uh, nerves of steel. And and I, I believe that goes back to his very uh, early days when, as a boy, he was and he and his family faced eviction from from the family farm, and later they 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 moved to Los Angeles and and were always just uh, one step ahead of the eviction notice at various places they rented. His father had, uh, was an entrepreneur who sometimes was successful and often wasn't. So that sort of insecurity um, and, and the fact that They accumulated no things. Uh, What they accumulated were friendships and family loyalties. And in the end, the value system that uh, was embedded in his uh, psyche and his DNA was the value of friends and family. And things mattered so little that whether he made money or lost money, uh, he just enjoyed the thrill of the risk.
0: What was it that brought him to Vegas initially? What was the attraction for him?
1: Well, initially he was after after World War II in which he uh, played a role as a contract pilot for the Royal Air Force flying uh, aircraft from Canada over the polar route, a very treacherous polar route in those days, to Scotland for use in, in fighters and and, uh, and bombers for the RAF. After the war he he had a few dollars left over from uh, the contract work he did on that uh, flying effort and he put it into a small charter business that he started in, out of los angeles and the la or los angeles air service became a uh a vehicle mostly to get to las vegas that's what that's where most people were going in in the 1940s and early 50s and kirk loved it he loved it he loved gambling his uh, he, he loved poker. He loved craps. Uh, uh, he, he loved it all, and he was an avid gambler himself. And so he was in Vegas a lot uh, as a pilot, taking taking people there, and and came to be something he uh, he wanted to be a part of.
0: He came to Vegas around the same time as Howard Hughes. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, both of them had been. Uh, gamblers and uh, had discovered uh, Las Vegas in the 40s and 50s, and maybe even earlier in the case of Howard. But but in the uh, 1960s, they both ended up there as major casino investors and hotel investors. Kirk, Kirk started to build the biggest hotel in the world in Las Vegas. It was a hotel that would later become uh, more me- memorable as the uh, Las Vegas Hilton. But at that time, it was called the International and and Howard Hughes had just come there with a, a pocket full of cash. He had five hundred um, million dollars from selling um, selling PWA, and he invested it in um, in casinos. And so you had two two. Um, and by this point, Kirk was was rich, but not not um, not Howard Hughes rich yet. Uh, but the two of them started building these uh, and and expanding on uh, on existing hotels and casinos and brought. And in effect, they pushed the mob out of out of town. It was the beginning of the end for the mob because these two guys didn't need mob money to build, uh, and they uh, the both of them um, had their own funds and their own banks, and they had uh, stock stockholders, shareholders to satisfy. And uh, that's where the the mob in, reign in Las Vegas began to end.
0: It really was the the second wave of Vegas. I mean, there was the mob wave, and then there was Hughes and Kerkorian. And then a little later on, there they they was Steve Wynn, who really brought Wall Street into Vegas, initially through Mike Milken.
1: Well, yes, but uh, Mike Milken also brought, helped bring Kirk Corian into Las Vegas through uh, through Wall Street loans as well. The two of them were—and uh, and Kirk was a big fan of Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn's uh, artistic uh, approach to, to developments was a great— um, a source of great admiration to Kirk. Hmm. And, and Kirk, Kirk loved the, about Bellagio. He thought that was the finest uh, hotel and casino he'd ever seen. So when he got the chance, he, uh, he bought Mirage, the whole Mirage uh, um, empire that Steve had built.
0: Talk a little bit about his modesty and his generosity and his modesty even about that.
1: Well, his, um, his view of charity was quite profound. He said if uh, charity that expects anything in return isn't charity, it's not charity. uh, Whether it's uh, (laughs) rewards or names on buildings or tribute dinners, whatever, Kurt wanted none of that. He wanted his charity to be seen as strictly personal from him, and it was without strings attached. So long as uh, the recipient didn't go around telling everybody that he got it from Kirk. Kirk wanted no credit for that. And and it was a reflection also on how he conducted this. His, his, uh, he built very loyal teams, uh, management teams in all of his hotels and casinos, because, as they said, um, Kirk took all the risks and he shared all the credit. I and mean, that, that, built, that built such great loyalty and devotion to him in every aspect. Uh, so it was his business uh, strategy. It was his charity strategy. And he was one of the most liberal uh, givers of, of cash to uh, causes of, uh, of any billionaire.
0: And, and first and foremost, all the money that he gave and all the help that he gave to Armenians.
1: Exactly. He was—his he, father was an Armenian immigrant, an illiterate uh, farmer who came to the States with an illiterate wife. And they— they had a family of, uh, of four, and Kirk was the youngest, and he always felt like he was uh, an American first and an Armenian always as well. And so his his devotion to the community that he grew up in, because he, he grew up in neighborhoods of Armenians, both in, in the San Joaquin Valley and in Los Angeles, were some of his closest friends. And it was it was his his goal to uh, to help Armenia someday. It was, it was uh, when he started making movies at MGM and when he owned MGM. One of the things he wanted to do was make a movie about the Armenians. Eventually he did it at the end of his life. But the, the Armenian story was important to him. And so back in 1988, after the earthquakes that devastated Armenia, then Soviet Armenia, um, Kirk arranged for an airlift take tons and tons of, of relief supplies—food, uh, medicine, um, building materials—that it, it turned into a, an airlift that spanned 20 years, and it it, it rivaled the Berlin airlift. And he did it with the help of just of other um, Armenian uh, charity groups, but Kirk provided the planes, and it was uh, it was something that. Uh, like the government uh, did in Berlin back in the 40s.
0: One of the things that was so amazing about, you mentioned MGM, which I think he bought and sold three times, was yes. the complexity of so many of his deals.
1: Yeah, he had a, um, his, his approach was, you buy these properties, and then you you put people in charge who you trust, and let them run it. He was not a detail guy, he was a vision guy. And, oh. He saw the uh, potential uh, in properties, and and uh, w- one of the things he saw in the case of movies and casinos, as well as uh, he had, he had, he bought Western Airlines at one point as well. Um, he saw these all uh, having one thing in common; they were all part of the of the leisure uh, uh, industry that he articulated and essentially invented. So he saw them as the leisure industry. After the war, was going to be a boom, a booming industry where people needed to go for vacations. They would travel. They'd stay in hotels. They gambled. They watched movies, and so he invested in those. But he the people he put in charge were people who knew what they were doing in casinos or hotels or movies or or uh, airplanes, airlines. He didn't. He didn't run them. He just expected results. And like I said earlier, he. He took the risks the financial risk, and he gave credit to everybody who did their jobs well and, and so they were just devoted to him uh, for a lifetime.
0: Talk a little bit about his view of buying and selling companies because the trading of assets was a big part of of what he did
1: yeah, what he looked for uh, in assets were hidden value uh, values uh, he looked for hidden value he looked for for stock uh, uh, stock values that were under under uh, performing. And he looked for simply quality, good quality companies. That's why he, in the course of his life, he owned, he owned, he was the primary stockholder for General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler at various times. He owned MGM, which he can. And one of the things he did with MGM uh, is, besides run it as a movie industry, he turned it into a brand that is a brand for resorts that, to this day, signifies. High quality and class
0: how did he see some of the other moguls of the time, Howard Hughes, who we mentioned before, and people like Carl Icahn and others that that were contempt, some were who were contemporaries of his
1: well he he was an admirer of Howard Hughes uh, until Howard Hughes lost his mind <laughs> um, and and uh, and Kirk wanted to emulate him to some degree because he, he saw him as a pilot's pilot he loved a swashbuckling style, but, but Kirk was so shy. He couldn't pull that off. You know, he was, uh, he, Kirk could not in fact stand up before a crowd and make a speech. I mean, if the crowd was 20 people, he would be petrified. So, uh, his, um, uh, he, he, was unlike T- Donald Trump, for instance, and in that he's like the opposite of Donald Trump, even though Trump considered, uh, Kirk to be the king of, of all the dealmakers. Called him, uh, called him the king and said, I love this guy. Well, Kirk wished he could talk like Donald, but that was about the only thing he, that he admired. So so the, uh, um, and, and people like um, you know, Bill Gates and others that are a part of the new, uh, new industries of technology, uh, he admired as well, but in private, because he was not a man who boasted anywhere in public. He, in private, he liked to tell his friends that he, was very proud of the fact that his, his, Kirk's investments cover such a wide range, cars, planes, movies, hotels, gambling uh, the, the gamut, and these, and the others are, you know, sort of one, one note uh, um, billionaires.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk about the people that surrounded him, the people that worked for him for so many years that were part of his retinue.
1: Well, uh, I mentioned that Cary Grant was, his, was what, he one of his best friends, and Cary Grant was not just a friend, but he, he was on, put him on the board of directors of MGM Resorts and MGM Film Studio. So um, uh, they had a special relationship. Uh, his, the people, he, he hired uh, Fred Benninger, who, uh, was, who ran uh, the, the hotels and the airlines for him because he had come out of, Fred had come out of the um, uh, Flying Tiger, uh, outfit. Um, he had the best lawyers in the world work for him. They just uh, starting uh, uh, with the big Hollywood lawyers in uh, in the seventies, in the sixties, and seventies to uh, to the teams that that were built around just looking out for Kirk. Um, so his there was a, there was an element of of genius, I think, in his selection of people who were. Smart enough to run his his companies and loyal enough to uh, take excellent care of them on behalf of shareholders. And Kirk Kirk's thing was the shareholders come first. He never even took he wouldn't take a free cup of coffee in his own in his own restaurants. Um, he wanted to pay for everything uh, that he bought, uh, and he wanted everyone else to do the same.
0: It was interesting that for a time he and Howard Hughes had the same lawyer in Greg Bautzer.
1: There you go. Yeah. And, and, and Bouncer was, uh, was the key to Kirk's takeover of, uh, of MGM mm-hmm. because the MGM folks were thinking that Bowser was representing Howard Hughes and came to the surprise that, Oh no, it's this fellow, uh, Kirk Kikorian who at that point was just emerging as a major player. So, uh, but, but Bowser was a, was a, the big, the King of Hollywood. He was, uh, he was the lawyer for the stars and Kirk, recognized that and went for him.
0: Tell us a little bit about Kerkorian's personal life. Well, that got more
1: complicated. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and he was married, um, he was married four times. Um, um, the first time for nine years and divorced, uh, the second one for about, for nearly 30 years and divorced. Um, but the, and, and all of his, all of his uh, romantic uh, Um, uh, partners were devoted to him. And uh, he lived essentially free of any kind of uh, tabloid attention until, uh, until he was in his seventies and eighties when a, uh, a former professional tennis player um, tried to doctor, doctored some DNA tests to show that he was the father of her baby when he was not. Um, that wasn 't a big deal to him until she sued him and took him into court, where it became a very public uh and embarrassing scandal to him as a uh, on the grounds that she was making everything about their personal life public uh, I would say that that was probably the major the biggest disappointment in his whole life was that that with all that money he couldn 't protect his privacy uh, from a uh, from a woman who uh, who who was not loyal in the end right. and who lied about his, their, their relationship. Right.
0: And he had, he had kids of his own.
1: Well, yeah. He had one, right. one uh, daughter by, uh, by uh, uh, biological daughter and he adopted an, another. So the two girls grew up together. Um, and the, this, this, the third baby that was not his, he's still adopted. And uh, she received a substantial uh, a trust fund when uh, in his will. So he was he was a man who had promised that even before he before he knew that she was not his, um, and he kept that promise even after he knew that it was it was not the father. So he's a very generous man in that regard too. But he was he was also like that in business. He was a man who said uh, he carried no grudges. Another another um, way that he's quite different from other. Um, billionaires we know he carried no grudges he hated to fire people Um, and uh, when when business was done business was done Uh, people that he um, did battle with in business became his social friends so that was part of his MO as well
0: Steve Wynn is a good example of that at one point um, I mean he could have uh, done a lot more damage to Wynn than he did when he when he bought him out
1: absolutely he, his Kirk's lawyers and business advisors all wanted a non-compete clause in the buyout agreement so that Wynn could not come back and build another hotel in, in Las Vegas uh, after he sold Mirage to Kirk. Kirk had to have none of that. He wanted competition. He believed competition was good for everybody and uh, that the best thing that Wynn could do would build a, build a new hotel across the street from him. And, of course, that's what he did. Um, this uh, Kirk, Kirk was a... Kirk loved competition. I can't emphasize that enough. He was a boxer he loved He loved to be in the ring alone fighting. He was an avid tennis player who who played on the senior circuit in his eighties. He loved to be out there on the court um, wailing away at those uh, tennis balls. so it was he loved competition in every aspect of life, and he particularly loved it in business.
0: What regrets do you think he had? I mean, he lived to, what, almost 90 or past 90. What regrets no, no, did he have? Yeah,
1: he was 98 the day 98. he died. And, um, you know, I think his, his regrets at the time were that he was, he, 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 ran, he ran out of stamina to, um, to do business deals before he ran out of uh, the, the, the desire to be doing them. But he was, still, he was still buying and selling into his 90s, so he, he made a pretty good run of it. Um as regrets I I think the uh, I, I, he he considered life a big craps game that's what he called it life's a big craps game and I've had and I've had a lot of fun he said so I, I I'm not sure he went to the grave with a whole lot of regrets um I think he regretted having his personal life hauled into the headlines of uh, the tabloids in Los Angeles that named the courthouse but I can tell you that as a researcher who who could find very little in the public record about Kirk compared to other uh, billionaires? I, those those court records were uh, were just golden from the standpoint of knowing, getting to know Kirk better, both from the things he filed and the things that uh, his his girlfriend filed.
0: Right. And did his girls take over the business, or did they have any interest in taking over the business uh, for yeah, which, for the, which the, was, the, was the named after the, them?
1: No, yeah. No. The, the daughters were all. Um, um uh, had had all, their own lives and um, had no va- no no uh, uh, re- uh, no place in the, in either of his, any of his companies um but he uh, he set up trust for them and they' they've uh, as far as i can tell are living happily ever after there was he had a, a one executive uh, Alex alexshiminiji an a, uh, a armenian from argentina who became his, uh, one of his closest advisors and uh, executives. And, and I, I think Alex was the son he never had kind of a, he had that kind of relationship with him for quite a while. Uh, Alex ended up running MGM and selling it the third time. Um, there were, you know, so, so he had people around him and Jerry Christensen was a lawyer that was close to him that, uh, that, uh, they they bonded in ways that in as friends that are that go beyond simple business associates.
0: It's interesting that he outlived so many of the people that he did business with.
1: Yes it is. Uh, he outlived all his friends and his, his family, his, uh, his his most of the early business uh, people are all long gone. And so when I stepped into this project of writing about him for for Harper Collins I was I was uh, left to choose from a a very limited group of sources who could talk about him with authority and uh, and detail. So um, believe me, this is this is almost it was almost like looking at someone who's um, from deep in history instead of uh, someone who so recently was so vital and, and alive.
0: And finally, talk a little bit about the common threads, the common themes that you heard, and we've touched on some of them, but specifically that you Mm -hmm. heard from some of the people that are still around, that, you know, people like Steve Wynn that he had so much contact with.
1: Well, Kirk Kirk was such a gracious man. He was, he had, everyone was his friend. uh, His integrity was unimpugned. Uh, When he was told you he would do something, he did it. When he shook your hand, you had a contract. I mean, these are old-fashioned ideas, but Kirk maintained old-fashioned ideas throughout his life. There's a story about that Alex Yemenichian told about um, when he was Kirk was selling the Desert Inn uh, that he had bought from the estate of of Howard Hughes at one point, and uh, and Alex was a relatively young guy with the uh, with the organization then, and he he he'd taken a bid for this. Uh, This hotel from a a group of Japanese investors and accepted it, thought it was a good deal, shook hands. And then the next day he got uh, a a competing bid late that was way better, may have been close to double. So Alex felt terrible and he called Kirk to see what he should do. And Kirk's question was, well, did you agree to this deal? And Alex said, "Well, yes, I guess I did." And Kirk said, "Then why are you calling me?" i up. not. You know, where, how many how many uh, businessmen have that will would, would put integrity ahead of uh, a few million dollars?
0: William Rappel, his book about Kirk Kerkorian is "The Gambler." Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thank you.